I guess you wouldn't do any shopping if you played Mallrats the RPG. <laughs> no. It's just quips. It's, it's basically bards and cutting words. Right. <laughs> sideboard in new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 48 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're talking about metagaming using out-of-character knowledge to make in-game decisions but first the party asks a favor of an angel in the morning glory campaign and the sword mage uses brains and brawn and a sword in the character creation forge so before we get to that, let's talk about Morning Glory. The party had just revisited Zendrik to talk to Belashira and the Drow Queen, who it turns out had merged into one horrible abomination. Well, we only really came for the Drow Queen. Yeah. We, we got a little extra Belashira And, and Brand's Gold. Well, right, yeah. <laughs> oh, and also the Book of Vile Darkness. Yeah, I know everyone was patiently waiting to find out what happened to Brand's Gold. Uh, it wasn't there. <laughs> Perhaps it was eaten by the Mimic. Yeah, well, the Mimic made it off the list i don't know what that means what does that mean (laughs) i was just gonna ignore it the mimic didn't make it onto if you're lampshading it (laughs) (laughs) the grudge was settled the queen lied dead so now the party had another piece of the apparatus that they believed would be able to slay an immortal being they had the book that if they could figure out how to get open included the true names of fiends Yeah, so we had heard legend that the book could only be opened by evil-aligned characters, of which we had none. You did, however, have an evil companion. Yes, we had Behemoth, our devil bound to a cup. Who heard you guys talking about it, figuring out what you could do about this potential problem. And then invited himself to the conversation. (laughs) At this point, Behemoth just sort of pointed out, you know... If you need a book opened, I think I can open a book. I am, after all, a book imp. Yeah, so we promptly put him back in his chalice (laughs) and would mull that over for the next few months. (laughs) In the meantime, the party then returned to Isla Carr to rest up and then started deciding what the next target was going to be for the essentially checklist of items that they needed to create this apparatus. Yeah, so we went for low-hanging fruit. We now had a giant Sybaris shard, and we knew of some angels in New Metro, where the former nation of Seer had been relocated to. Uh, We figured, let's go take care of that. Yeah, if you remember, it was difficult to leave New Seer, but at any time the party could have actually teleported back there. It was just then they would have been basically trapped or it would have been difficult to get away because of the dimensional lock. Yeah, once again, you got to walk out. (laughs) (laughs) But the party figured, you know, we've done that before. I think we know how to do it again. You metagamed a little bit and said, I don't think Asian's going to make us play that again. Right, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you never have to make two trips through the same unending desert of despair. Yeah, we, we did that once. We're fine. So the party teleported to New Metro and they found that... About a year and a half had passed for the people there because of the time slippage between the two areas. Yeah, and then we went to our angel friends and said, hey guys, it's about time. Need you to help us out. So this was the first time that the angels had seen this third prophecy because the party had gotten it from the dragons. And the planetar sage, Hroan, reads it, looks at it, and says... No, I I agree with your interpretation. I I believe that placing a solar inside this really big Sybaris shard that you brought with us does seem to fit the prophecy. So you approach Kokabiel, the only solar in the city, and say, you know, it it is for the good of the multiverse. So I don't know, could you be trapped for eternity? Is that okay? It's for the greater good. (laughs) (laughs) And Kokabiel... Of course, being a solar says, yes, I, I will make this eternal sacrifice. However, I can't do it right now. Because the only thing holding back the darkness here in this 
demiplane that is basically a mixture of Dolor and Maybar is me. So I will gladly submit to eternal imprisonment if you find some way to return New Seer to the material plane. To which the party says, all right, we'll add that to the list. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> yep, but then they promptly, well, Calic visits his daughter. They say hi. It's a little awkward because, you know. She's a year older. Yeah, he missed he missed another birthday. Right. Another birthday. Another birthday. <laughs> Which makes all, all of, of them. them. <laughs> and the party walks off. Did you go to through Maybar again, the devil you know? Or did I, you head off to Delure? Yeah, I think we went through Maybar again. Yeah, yeah. We knew how to handle it. We figured. Smart, yeah. Uh-huh. And we were also, I think, pretty well equipped at that point. We had, we had planned ahead for the trip back through Maybar. Right. You knew how to hide. You had a bunch of rope trick squirrels. <laughs> yeah, we, we went ahead and, you know. <laughs> planned that's that's why you go to isla car yeah obviously <laughs> and then the party is able to get back to the material plane and then decides that their next destination will be sharn city of towers we'll find out why next week so this week our main topic is metagaming so fair warning this starts with a lot of game theory and design crap so if you're not interested in that keep uh, listening yeah <laughs> maybe we can get you interested <laughs> or fast forward roughly five minutes <laughs> so Ishan, what's uh what's the definition of metagaming it's using information from outside the rule set of a game to inform your strategy when playing that game Ishan, i believe you used to play magic the gathering is this true yeah yeah i did and, I, was, I was pretty good at it too and you played in tournaments right mm-hmm. and you knew at the time that blue decks were really popular right but when i was playing it was the wiseman deck uh, which was a blue-white denial deck. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. So mm-hmm. you, of course, played Red Sly to counter that deck by attacking it quickly, right? Right. This was always the question. Do In a given field, do you play the deck that is going to beat the majority of opponents, or do you play the deck that is going to beat your main competition? Guess what? You're a metagamer. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so so metagaming is the difference between playing that optimal strategy against all potential strategies or playing your optimal strategy against your most likely strategy. So in Magic the Gathering, it's exactly that question. Do you play the deck that's most dangerous to you or do you play against any deck that could potentially happen? That sort of thing evolves over time. It happens in sports. It happens in politics. Uh, ever play poker? Not well. <laughs> it's because you don't know how to metagame poker. <laughs> so this this happens in real life too. Uh, yeah, my favorite example is actually from real life war games. So there was a an event in 2002 called the Millennium Challenge where the U.S. Armed Services posited a game where they went to war in the Middle East. Huh. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's, it's like they knew. <laughs> Uh, so they asked one of their generals to play the Middle East side and then had the American side play with American resources. So you're saying that the general who played the Middle East cheated? Uh, he metagamed. <laughs> <laughs> so he knew, being an American general, knew all of our combat doctrine and uh, specifically targeted all the weaknesses. So, for example, he knew that we use a lot of electronic surveillance and uh, rely heavily on that so he just went old-fashioned and started delivering his communications by motorcycle messenger see he memorized our tactica right exactly (laughs) then he did really basic things like use fishing boats to spot the fleet the american fleet at sea so it could you know position them Uh, and then he launched all of his missiles at once to overwhelm our uh, our sensors and our our anti-missile defenses and then he ran a massive force of suicide boats directly into our Navy. He's that player who goes to the bathroom during a session, but is really just peeking at the monster manual. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so as you, as you might imagine, uh, the blue team then rage quit. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, it was actually, I mean, it's, it's been written about a bunch. There was a documentary on it by the New York Times about what the overall value of this exercise was because the general who led the red team was complaining that it just seemed whatever he did to win got invalidated because american military command didn't want their tactics to be disproven and of course military command's position was 
well, that's not what we were trying to test here. Right. <laughs> you weren't playing your part. <laughs> right. It, if we were trying to test what happens if a general goes rogue, then this works. Right, right. So, and that's sort of kind of the controversy to this day, right, is uh, how much did they tighten down the rules of the game to limit what would actually happen in a real war? And it's the same disagreement that happens in RPGs as well. You know, I think the term metagaming has often very negative connotations for a lot of gamers because it's often considered to be tantamount to having your character do something that they wouldn't do in character, that they wouldn't do in game in a way that makes sense inside the game world simply because of information that the player has. Yeah, it's uh, cheating (laughs) is usually how people (laughs) think of it, right? Uh, It's got a universally negative connotation in RPGs, I think. But we all metagame to a point and we all have to. Otherwise, the game itself wouldn't actually work. Yeah, so there's actually a lot of, mm, not rules, but conventions Mm -hmm. that you'll find within an RPG that you don't actually see written anywhere in the player's handbook. Yeah, we just talked about Session Zero a few weeks ago, and one of the things that's really good about that is you get to sit down and everyone gets to talk about the role that they're going to play. You're going to be the fighter, oh, you're melee, okay, do we have a healer, do we have someone who can open locks? Right. So that diversity in role and the decision not to step on each other's toes, that's one of the metagame conventions of role-playing games. Right. Some of you might be saying, oh, but you know, you could do that in character. Well, sure, if you build all those characters first and then right. they come to the tavern and they talk and then someone says, well, we've already got a fighter, so get out of here. And then you go build another character. Yeah, that sounds fun. <laughs> I, I mean, or you take two fighters and don't have a healer and, and then what? <laughs> right. Also doesn't sound fun. Different editions in different games put a different focus on that but rarely do they say you have to have a fighter a cleric a wizard a thief Mm -hmm. even though the game kind of expects you to have somebody healing you (laughs) right but the game often does say "Eh, maybe don't have evil characters yeah that's another thing you're making sure that the party's interests are aligned uh, whether that's your actual alignment or just why are you getting started together right but there has to be something tying the group together or else well, RPGs don't work very well as six individual tales told at one table. <laughs> I've talked about this a lot too, but as a GM, you want players to buy in enough that they'll accept your plot hooks. You know, So if the old shopkeeper suggests that they go down to the basement and kill some rats, well, just go do it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's varying degrees of this. Maybe you aren't going to kill those rats, but you also aren't just going to wander around town shopping for the first five sessions, right? Mm-hmm. You're gonna find the plot one way or the other it's just kind of the way these games are built unless you guys metagamed ahead of time and said hey we're doing a shopping session yeah Uh well i mean that's why i played mall rats the rpg (laughs) wait i guess you wouldn't do any shopping if you played mall rats the rpg (laughs) no another common convention uh don't split the party it's not a good idea i mean unless you're the gm and in which case split the party well, right. <laughs> but but we have this kind of ingrained in us that it's difficult for a GM to run a game with a split party and it's bad for tactics for the party to be split. But there's actually nothing in any book generally that prevents you from going in two different directions. Yeah, it was pretty common in older modules, but, you know, a lot of... Well, it was common to punish you in older <laughs> modules. <laughs> but, you know, how many groups have you been in where you look around and say, okay, I might do this in character, but that's going to make everything really complicated for everybody else. Like, I might drop a fireball in the middle of this room because I'm not in that room, but everyone else is. Friendly fire. Yeah. Yeah, there's also a concept of the group winning versus an individual winning. So if you think of it as like the horror movie trope of I'm running into the room to lock the door and I screw over the rest of the party, you can't really do that in an RPG even a horror RPG, because it's just unsporting to directly screw over your teammates. Yeah, even the cowardly character gets a lot of dirty looks from other players uh, if they act in character for too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, get o- get over the cowardly stuff. Like, team player, come on. And, and even if you're going to be cowardly for a while, you're definitely not actively undermining the fighting, right? right. <laughs> you're not throwing sand in the eyes of your allies. <laughs> uh, I had a guy who played a cowardly character, and he would always he would always run away during every fight. And I was just like, why, why are we keeping this guy around? But it was actually metagaming on our part for not kicking that character out of the party. Right. Because, like, 
he was in our group. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, he, he had a character level. And when you see somebody with character levels, you invite them to your adventuring party. That's Obviously. just how it works. <laughs> There's also conventions around story content. So, for example, in our RPGs, in Western RPGs, they're hyper-violent. You kill lots of things over the course of a D&D campaign. And, and whether that's a humanoid, you know, or even a human who has free will, or it's an animal, or it's a mythical creature... Violence is just always on the table, and usually it's your first and second option. On the flip side, the original content in the RPG made, uh, a Japanese RPG, had to be edited because it was inappropriately sexual for an American audience. I mean, it's inappropriately sexual. Yeah, it It was... It was was pretty creepy. It was all of your Japanese stereotype, yeah. Yeah, so players of that particular game, there's an expectation that sex is an answer or uh, an option during an encounter. Right, regardless of the framing of that encounter. (laughs) So why is all this stuff important? So you want to keep these things in mind when you're designing adventures, when you're designing your settings, and if you're up to it, designing your games. Because you need to think about these from the perspective of not only the person who's reading it, but the person who's playing it. If you're playing along these conventions, then people are going to pick it up relatively easily. But if you're changing these conventions, you need to spell that out very clearly to everybody. So one example I think of is Fiasco, because in most RPGs, the goal is for your character to live, right? Fiasco comes out right at the beginning and says, (laughs) your character is a jerk, they're despicable human beings, and they're probably going to die. And maybe not at the end. (laughs) But then it has mechanics that allow you to do that and then also continue playing the game, right? But if there's no metagame conversation, a person who's never played Fiasco before and is learning the game may come in and be honestly shocked or even really upset that their character is failing, being undermined, or dies. Right. So I I think it's important when you're playing with these concepts or or you're going against them to playtest them. And you ran into that when we playtested Phoenix Dawn Command. Yeah. One of the central conceits of that system is that your character dies in order to level up, in order to grow more powerful a new incarnation of themselves is is born, you know, a phoenix. And, of course, the characters are out to basically save the world. So my question was, okay, if I know that I'm going to come back and I get more powerful after I die, wouldn't the most logical thing for a character to do be to kill themselves a few times, right. get powerful, and then like go out there and actually save the world rather right. than like slowly working their way up and maybe we fail yeah, so uh, when you asked that question, my answer was, no, you can't do that for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but then we asked, we actually got an answer from... Keith of, Baker, right? yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, no, wait, no, that, that's spelled out. It actually doesn't quite work that way. It's not guaranteed that you come back. Right, yeah, you have to earn your reincarnation. <laughs> right, so an ignoble death, stabbing yourself in the heart, doesn't work. No. <laughs> so when these conventions aren't spelled out above the table or when there's actually too much tamping down of metagame chatter, problems arise. Yeah, so we're going to tease this out as long as possible before we talk about the obvious metagame problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But there, there are some other problems, right? So, for example, if your source material, if your inspiration isn't honoring these kind of metagame conventions, you risk not really capturing the inspiration. And I think specifically of Game of Thrones. It's super popular right now. Lots of people want to run... Game of Thrones like games. Yeah, right? like. Right. <laughs> but um you ever notice how the main characters constantly screw each other over, kill each other and um and generally don't do adventuring party type things? That would be a problem at a table. Yeah, be pretty short-lived. A lot of infighting. Kind of boring actually. Yeah, it's half a good session. Well, <laughs> the, the other problem is like either you're one of the characters participating in the titular Game of Thrones or you're just interacting with a bunch of the GM's NPCs. Mm-hmm. You're not even going to see all the politics. You're only going to see the party's little piece of it. So it's just a weird a weird concept. But if you want to get into this screw each other over and stab each other in the back, like the majority of popular game systems are not designed for that. So it ends up being very, very easy to undermine other PCs if you're designed for it. Okay, so maybe we've got some inspiration that's at risk here. What can we do to help avoid this problem? Well, it's one of the things you can deal with in session zero, right? Setting the clear expectations. 
before it really becomes a problem. But in-game, you can also incentivize your players to defy the convention if that's what you want them to do or that's what you want them to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, you could change the way that you award XP to encourage the type of behavior that you want. Or in 5e, you have Inspiration, which is excellent. Light side, dark side points of Edge of the Empire or Fate in Fate. And I also think it helps if you, you know, if you've decided to do like an all rogue campaign, don't then punish the players for not having a healer. <laughs> you know, if, if you've set up, signed up for this type of game, then you can't use that against them. Yeah, by allowing everyone to play a rogue, you've set the parameters of the metagame that that's okay and that it's going to be a feasible option in the future. Yeah, and then I would start small. It's easier to try it out for a one-shot or a convention game where your commitment to this playstyle is limited, and if it goes wrong, then you've only lost a few hours instead of you know signing up for a huge campaign of it. But if it does work, you can just keep going. All right, so I think we've put it off long enough. Let's talk about when PCs are acting, quote-unquote, out of character. So one way you can do this is when you talk about skills. So it's always, my character is better at something than I am. I don't know how to swing a sword, but my character does. Or I don't know how to be charming and persuading to the court, but my character does. So... How do I, as a player, if I am a fantastic orator and my character isn't, what do we do when I make a great flowery speech at the table and then you ask me to roll a persuasion check? Right. If the words coming out of the player's mouth are a bit stuttery or perhaps not very prosaic, if there is no metagame, then everyone else at the table in character responds as if those were literally the words that were said. Right. There should be a metagame understanding, at least to an extent, that this person has a charisma of 19 or or is very eloquent. So the world and the characters need to respond to them as if that is actually the case. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that's where you run into the problem, right? Is uh, if you attempt to speak in character and do it poorly, are you punished for what you said? Or is it sort of on the writing room floor, right? Okay, we know we're going to give this type of speech, but imagine it being much better than I just did. It reminds me of that Dead Alewives sketch uh, way back in the day, I Attack the Darkness, uh, where the GM is arguing with the players and he says, you know, if you don't remember it, then your character doesn't remember it, which is absolutely not the way to go. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, did you bring your 10 foot pole? Well, no, but I just got done working in an office for eight hours and my character has spent the past four days trekking out to this dungeon <laughs> ready to raid it. So, <laughs> so yes, I have a 10 foot pole jerk. Yeah. <laughs> I just went through this in uh, one of my play-by-post games. We were sabotaging speeders that were about to go on a race in a, in a Star Wars game. I don't know anything about how speeders work. Like, Ishin has no idea how speeders work. Well, that's because they don't actually work. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do I really know anything about gambling or, or the racetrack or, you know, how many heats the racers need to go through before one of them is, is crown champion, okay? But my character can make a mechanics check to figure out how to sabotage a speeder and can make an intelligence to guess at what would be the best thing to sabotage. Right. <laughs> and we had sort of gotten into a lull because no one was really sure, okay, exactly what do we do here? So eventually it just got down to, you know what? We're basically going to metagame this. I'm going to roll some dice you tell me what my character who would know these things will do and let's just do that right you know and that keeps the game from totally stalling out yeah but what if we took that type of argument and moved it over to combat where you could say well i'm not very good at playing D D. like i don't really understand tactics but my character is a battle master fighter that's his whole thing is tactics so just play my character optimal tactics I think there's a middle ground, right? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you've no, got to find don't something Don't tell me how to do this perfectly. But right. I, I think often what happens is you have the character who is supposed to be very good at these kinds of things, and the player either doesn't want to bother or you know isn't particularly good at that. Right. So everyone else at the table just sort of chimes in and says, oh, actually, I think you'd probably flank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's always that polite, like, I don't want to quarterback you here, but <laughs> it would be really helpful if you started playing better. <laughs> right, and it works really well when the player is like, no, no, you should you should quarterback me. This is what I want. This yeah. is great. Yeah, I was playing in a con game at a Catacon, and there was a player at the table who had 
I, I think it was a battle master, but it might have been a different class, but had never played that class before and mm. didn't know all the abilities. And we were in one of the big fights and it was just like, hey, I, I know you haven't played this before. Um, you might want to look at that ability and that ability. It might be useful on your turn. <laughs> like, <laughs> just FYI. <laughs> and I think most players appreciate that kind of thing, you know, if it's not constant, right? But if you missed something and, hey, guess what? You're not dead. <laughs> or turns out that was a crit. <laughs> right. <laughs> People usually want to know those sorts of things. Yeah. So you have to draw the line somewhere. But uh, I guess I would focus on fun and just keeping the game moving. Right? right. Of course, there is what's sort of considered the traditional metagaming tactic, which is using that out-of-character knowledge. You know, you you have this in-game, this character that happens to know exactly how to defeat this monster. Huh. Yeah, weird. I don't even know how to pronounce Slod, and yet <laughs> that guy <laughs> knows all about green and gray and orange. He actually knows there are no orange slots. Oh, is that true? <laughs> so yeah, it's never a good idea to use your knowledge. You know, you, if you enjoy reading the monster manual as a book, which you and I both like doing that, yeah, it's I, never yeah. it's never a good idea to use that knowledge in game when a character would have no way of knowing that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's also a line there, right, where when you get in your typical fantasy tropes, it's just kind of expected. So like I would say it's ridiculous to pretend everyone doesn't know that a troll is vulnerable to fire or that they regenerate. Yeah, it is a little weird to be like, well, you know, give me a nature check. Oh, you're old low? You have no idea. Yeah, it's like I'm not an adventurer and I know trolls are like that, (laughs) you know? So can we just meet in the middle and say, if like, if everybody at the table knows this, we just know it. (laughs) Certainly there must be nursery rhymes, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Like if this is a world with real vampires, everyone's going to know to use daylight and stake them. Right. And you know, maybe those aren't always accurate. Maybe they actually are false or made up, you know, garlic, maybe it doesn't actually hurt vampires and they don't care about crosses at all. Well, yeah, in D and D that's certainly the case, right? (laughs) You can run into this problem with setting-specific knowledge, especially when you've got these rich, detailed settings that have secrets. Yeah, I mean, when you've been playing in the Forgotten Realms for 30 years, it's really hard not to run across something where you're like, oh, yeah, I read about this in a novel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, I know all about the court politics of (laughs) Waterdeep. (laughs) Right. Well, Angela, who'd played in a couple Eberron games before, knew that, spoiler alert, the King of Karnath is actually a 100-year-old vampire. I thought he was a 1,000-year-old vampire. Only 100. Oh, yeah. a baby vampire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but his character, no amount of history check is gonna gonna give him that information, right? It's, yeah, it would it's be impossible. Like a family secret that five people know, <laughs> and you know everyone who's read the campaign setting knows. <laughs> but the flip side is like, I couldn't tell you where Sharn is on a map of Corvair, but my character, an Inquisitor, <laughs> would certainly know where his country's enemies are, at least directionally. So I can't fail a history check that's going to tell me what direction Sharn is on the map. Yeah, so if Inquisitor Bren is coming up with some sort of tactical plan that happened to invert the locations yeah, of it's not going to accidentally Freeland and Ondaire, yeah, right. It's, it's not accidentally to the west now. Like, <laughs> it's definitely east. Right, and up, someone Brent. should point out, oh, I think I think you might actually be confused about the location. Right. Because right. that, that wouldn't happen. Actually, I mean, in, in character, in game, it probably would happen, happen too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, are you confused? <laughs> are you drunk again? See, that's the thing. is, It would have been Bran doing the rope-a-dope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can't trust our commander. We must mutiny. All right, kill them all. <laughs> like I said before, this was an interesting opportunity for me because, you know, Angelo knew about Caius. And, he, you know, all of you guys saw his eyes light up and when he was like, oh, wait, I think I remember. And then he sort of, like, clamped his hand over his mouth. and was like, oh, never, uh, no, never mind. I don't, I don't know anything here. I don't know anything. And then I was thinking, okay, I can either just stick with it as written, you know, he's doing a good job, it doesn't really matter if they know he's a vampire, or I could totally flip it and make it so it's absolutely not what's what's written in the book. I did both of those things. I mean, Caius, I kept a vampire, but there were definitely other things where I just made it the, almost the complete opposite of what it actually was in canon, just to keep the players who had played in Eberron before on their toes. So another thing you can run into is game mechanics existing within the game world right so i'm talking about things that like spell slots or uh, daily or encounter powers or levels and character classes and 
experience points. Yeah, usually a table decides exactly how aware of those kinds of things the PCs actually are. You know, I don't think there's really any table, except maybe if you're playing Order of the Stick, where... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where they lampshade it. <laughs> <laughs> where characters actually know, like, what quote-unquote level they are, you know, or even what their classes are. Right. But certainly there's often a sense that, okay, like, I've, I've used up all my high-level spells. I They have been wiped from my memory. I don't have them anymore. Right. And then you have these meta-concepts of, like, fate points. Right. What is a fate point? My character doesn't know what fate is. Right. But they may not be feeling very lucky right <laughs> they might feel like their luck has run out for the day <laughs> i always think it's funny with monster names too like half the time when when i'm running i just give you guys the name of whatever the monster is after i describe it because mm-hmm. i'm just like we could keep calling it the giant red bloody demon but at the end of the day it's a blood letter and that's what i'm looking at in the book so let's just call it a blood letter yeah like how often do you need to, to describe the small creature with the with no hair and and pointy ears it's kind of stooped over and has long fingers and sharp teeth like it's a freaking goblin just say goblin um that's a no <laughs> that's a gretchen <laughs> it can be fun for a little while but yeah pretty soon you just start moving on to the actual monster manual name so everybody knows what you're talking about which is important though when, when we're talking about this character knowledge because you have to trust your players to not then turn around and look up in the monster manual right. oh oh we're fighting that okay well oh did you know that he has immunity to acid don't use your acid attack or if you're playing with me know that i'm gonna go look it up because oh no actually i'm not gonna go look it up i've already read it you've already memorized yeah it. of course yeah. <laughs> it's actually sometimes fun to figure out okay what would my character know about this and what would they do in this situation? Oh, no, I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy that as a player, even yeah. though I, I try and find ways to learn that in character. Yeah. Right. I'll use that uh, whatever he's immune to on the first round of attacks so I can learn that he's immune to it and adjust. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> what do I do first? I hit it with fire, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> All right. Radiant? <laughs> metal yeah i've got a little bit of cold damage here but i'm really not relying on it uh this is also one of the things you can you can run into these like logical breakdowns if you think too hard about the, the mechanics of a system mm-hmm. uh we've joked about us uh figuring out that D has faster than light travel because you could just ready actions infinitely and thus transport something over a very large distance in six seconds but obviously that doesn't exist in the real world or High-level D&D, high-level systems, a lot of them, it's very difficult to die from falling long distances because, you know, 20d6, well, that's like, what, 77 yeah, average damage. Yeah. You, start, you start doing the math, and it's like, do I waste a fly spell on my way down, or do I just I'll just tank it, it? I'll just tank it. Right. It's fine. Yeah, like... But in character, even, you know, a 19th level, well, okay, maybe a 19th level barbarian, but is yeah. a Battlemaster fighter going to say, nah, I could I could hit face first and it's not going to be a problem. Right. They're probably not going to jump. Exactly. Or pushing someone off a ledge in sort of the, the medium levels of D&D, the right? The princess like, will be fine. No one ever thinks about that. Yeah. It, it's She's not... going to hit terminal velocity almost immediately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or if you if you push an enemy over the edge, it's just like, it's not enough damage. I'm going to have to jump after him. I might as well not. <laughs> yeah. Although I do like the greater good paladin who pushes someone off the ledge and says, I mean, I have revivify. I got a minute to get down there. <laughs> right. And hey, guess what? I can jump off this ledge and land. <laughs> I can tank it. No, what you do is you contingency yourself, then revivify. <laughs> then you jump. <laughs> That way, if you don't make it, you're fine. Or if you're the diplomancer, you jump, and then they come back to life. Right, yeah. It's a a very convincing jump of yours. (laughs) All right, so if you are having players who have a lot of trouble separating their out-of-character knowledge from their in-character knowledge, there are some options for you. Well, probably the least popular of all, talk to the player. (laughs) Really? Like I I would rather write a passive-aggressive post on a forum asking people what I should do and then downvote everything that says talk to the player. Oh, I have an alternative. You should you could write into your favorite podcast at totalpartythrill at gmail.com <laughs> and we'll use that in a future QA episode. Yes. Huh? Mailbag? Compla- mailbag. Complain about your your players. Right. Ooh, this sounds fun. It's what we're really here for. <laughs> come come and sit on our comfortable couch in our office. <laughs> 
tell us how you really feel. Right. Yeah, but talk to your player. And then I think a lot of players sometimes don't, especially new players, don't realize what they're doing mm-hmm. is a problem. Um, and then, you know, some players have bad habits or aren't thinking in that way or whatever. Or maybe it's something they just don't realize bothers you. So talk about it and then kind of work together to change the habit. Yeah, not using metagame knowledge in game is something that needs to be discussed in the metagame. It's a convention. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Fix your in-game problems in-game. Fix your out-of-game problems (laughs) out-of-game. And then I think the the way to address that as it's happening in the game, right, is to sort of acknowledge it and then just ask them to role-play without that, right? So, yes, okay, you know as a player how Slod reproduce. That's cool, but let's pretend you don't because your character doesn't. Yeah, Angelo is a very experienced player, but if he'd been newer, I think it's almost rewarding to go, hey, wait, I know this thing. I played in another game. This is awesome. You know, throwback to knowledge I already have. I could have then just reminded him out of character, oh, hey, but Bahar wouldn't know that information. And, yeah. and I think he would have very quickly been like, oh, right, right, okay. Yeah. It's good to cultivate a healthy appreciation of dramatic irony. <laughs> <laughs> And I talked a little bit about this before, but you could also just, you know, subvert that character knowledge and use it against them. Yeah, and this works when you have experienced players who aren't actively trying to do this, right? It's mm-hmm. it's not bad behavior. It's just kind of lazy habits or something or, or just, you know, kind of broad experience. But, uh, you know, if you change those key details and assumptions, you can really mess with your players. <laughs> yeah, and actually I think it can be fun for those players because... You know, experienced adventurers are like, all right, so I'm going to bring the wooden stake, obviously. I'm going to bring the 10 foot pole. Plus one sword. Right. Alchemist fire, you never know. Right. Silvered bolts. Right. And like, we're not idiots, so obviously we're getting the wand of lesser vigor. Right. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> I'm in Pathfinder society, so I'm taking that wand of healing. <laughs> and it can be so subtle things like the trolls of this particular forest are actually immune to fire but they're vulnerable to cold what yeah i know i know that's fun and it's gonna throw your players for a loop once and then they'll (laughs) move on right aren't you just gonna change the damage type that the trolls are immune to next time well i think that's the key is you want to create consistency oh otherwise it just feels like you're just screwing with them to screw with them right it's the it's the world of unpredictable trolls And, and, and we're not we don't well, I, players I, just screw with them. That's an advanced technique. We'll cover okay. that later. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you encounter, you know, trolls from that forest a few sessions later, they ought to still be vulnerable to cold and immune to fire so that the players and characters get to apply that knowledge that they've kind of earned in-game. Yeah, you want to reward your players for using in-game knowledge. You just want to make sure they're not using out-of-game knowledge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and then I think another thing that, that can really help tie this together is if you give subtle clues that have clear meaning after the fact. If they stumble on you know an abandoned troll camp and see there's a fire pit, well, most players probably aren't going to notice that or, or really think too much about it until they learn, oh, they're immune to fire. That is weird that trolls would have a fire pit. They're weird trolls. And that we could have known that had we pieced it all together. And now we'll never forget I, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. I mean, I'm not immune to fire, and I would have a fire pit. But you're not vulnerable to fire. Well, you kind of are vulnerable <laughs> to fire. <laughs> yeah, but you don't have regeneration the way trolls do. Fair. All right. <laughs> Less to lose from fire. Right. It probably hurts them more not being whole. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It definitely helps if you can cultivate a appreciation of dramatic irony from your players when you're dealing with these things, though. So, Shane, explain the difference to our listeners between irony and dramatic irony. I don't even know what irony means anymore. But I do <laughs> so let's just move on. Yeah, but I do know what dramatic irony means. <laughs> I believe irony is that thing that we decided not to do a whole episode on. Uh, I think irony is rain on your wedding day. Obviously. A free right? ride when you've already paid. Uh, Alanis would not lie to us. No, 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 wait. The whole song was irony because there's no irony in it. Is <laughs> that the, is that A the few thing? of the things were ironic. Uh, like the, the guy dying on his first plane crash? I believe so, yeah. Crashing on his first crashing plane flight. Yeah. yeah, that guy. He's mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, okay. It's not 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. His beautiful wife, though. Not ironic. Platonic. <laughs> all right. This has been our uh, breakdown of Alanis Morissette. <laughs> so dramatic irony is when the audience knows something that the characters don't. 
I always like to think of Shakespeare. I love Othello. Uh, you get to see all of Iago scheming uh, in one scene, and then in the next scene, you see Othello walking right into the trap. And there's that tension there of, is he really going to do it? Can he possibly avoid this? Is it really, oh, it's happening. And that's where you get the tragedy. I find it so nerve-wracking. <laughs> oh, I know. It's it's totally that horror movie trope, right? Of, yeah. You know the killer is in that room. Don't go in that room, right? You're the killer. Right. <laughs> it was the boyfriend all along. <laughs> no, don't have sex. You can't have sex in a horror movie. <laughs> uh, they just they didn't know they were in a horror movie. That's the problem. I know. That's yeah. <laughs> so we had one of these moments in in Morning Glory, and it was a big moment. Yeah. When we ended up back in Seer before the day of mourning, mm-hmm. we were pretty sure that we would end up causing the day of mourning. We just had no idea how. I mean, that was pretty metagamey of you guys because you went back in time. You knew a tragedy was coming. You know me. And you said, oh, yeah, we, we definitely did this. This is us. But as characters, <laughs> we went straight on. Yep. <laughs> like, we shall avert this crisis. <laughs> we'll definitely break into the Kenneth facility and won't screw anything up. That's right. It's time to save the day because that's what we do. <laughs> and then when a Rakshasa shows up and says, oh, I've been meaning to get through those defenses. Thanks for the help. We go, yeah, I know. <laughs> Duh. Uh this also happened in our Rogue Trader game. It seems like a pattern. <laughs> it's because we love dramatic irony. <laughs> right. Yeah, in Rogue Trader, you introduced some Necron weapons to the party. Uh, I introduced some really awesome weapons that shoot green light. Yeah. <laughs> Which everyone at the table immediately recognized for Necron weapons. Right, and everyone in-game said, hey, these are awesome pirate weapons. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why else would there be this skull on the... <laughs> right. <laughs> So you guys thought they were great weapons, or your characters all thought they were just great weapons, and uh, and every player at the table groaned for fear that they were going to be facing Necron. Which, I mean, we will. Well, you won't, actually, because uh, your next action was to permanently destroy the cache. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad that worked. Right. I was figuring we would just have to fight Necrons with no Necron weapons. Right. <laughs> yeah, you saved me from having to stat out the master death rates, so thanks. <laughs> That's good. You know, I mean, this is a this is a challenging thing to pull off in gaming because you don't have the distinction between the actor and the audience, mm-hmm. right? Players are writers, actors, and audience all at the same time and all in turn. And if there's too much of that breaking the fourth wall or clutching defeat from the jaws of... Snatching jaws defeat of... from the jaws of victory. <laughs> it, it can feel a bit yakety sacks. Yeah, if there's too much enjoyment of that irony, uh, the whole thing goes off the rails because everybody is trying to walk into the traps. Yeah. But it can be very rewarding because the game is a shared narrative. So if just one or maybe two players are sort of walking into inevitable failure and everyone knows it, that can be fun. Yeah, it's worth the individual cost for that dramatic payoff. Yeah, I think about... Every time I have had a fellow player who in real life was moving away or, you know, just couldn't be in the game anymore or something like that, there was always some sort of glorious death scene. And everyone knew, everyone, all the players knew that it was coming. Right. You know, the characters didn't necessarily, but it was still awesome. Yeah, that's that's become my favorite move is when a character is temporary, I always <laughs> kill them at the end of the session, whether I'm player or GM. And when your friend came back to play... I was just going to say, my buddy who visits every six months or so, he's starting to ask why he never plays the same character. (laughs) (laughs) But I too, my character keeps getting new stuff, which is great. (laughs) He's got a bolt pistol. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, this can really be great for setting up um, certain kind of story arcs. So the, you know, heroic sacrifice or origin stories, coming of age kind of thing where you have to kind of get knocked down so you can get back up. It's a great way to introduce that and, and get some player buy-in in the process. And you can also sometimes just fast forward to the tropes that everybody wants anyway. If it's a zombie game in Deadlands, shoot him in the head. Yeah. <laughs> just just do it. Right. That's what you want. And I think as players, when you see that direction of the plot, it, it can kind of free you up to um, help guide the story along that road without feeling like you're being pushed along a railroad. When you can see sort of where the end is, you can wander a bit to the left or the right, but you know where you're headed. 
Yeah. Uh, I think that's comforting for players sometimes. Sometimes it is useful to take off the I'm in character blinders and just play a game. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> just just work on making a great story for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, it's a headshot. Well, then we need to re-roll another character. So let's <laughs> move on to the character creation forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And last but not least, you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we promised you a sword mage, which those of you who never played 4E might be a little confused about what this term actually means. But the archetype of a lightly armored melee warrior that uses spells has been around since at least 2nd edition. There was the Bladesinger kit. It carried through in 3rd edition to the Eldritch Knight Prestige class, and then eventually in 4E, it became its own base class. It was the Forgotten Realms specific sword mage which was an arcane caster that was an intelligence-based defender, and it would shield its allies with spells and then draw fire away from them, and it would teleport around the battlefield and generally be a huge nuisance to the GM, but it was a ton of fun to play. (laughs) Of course you would think that. (laughs) I attack it. Uh, My sword is there. (laughs) All right, well, then I attack. Nope, sword is there too. So... In some ways, you could do this with abjuration, right? Mm-hmm. The abjuration has the the cool tanky abilities of for a wizard, but it's going to be tough to be a blade singer <laughs> since you can't multi-class <laughs> wizard twice. So, how are you doing this? Well, fortunately, the Sword Coast Adventurers Guide offers us more than just the blade singer, and I don't think we've used this subclass yet. But it has the Order of the Crown Paladin. So we have not used it yet, and I don't remember anything about it, Ishan. Why don't you give me a quick rundown? <laughs> we don't usually use it because it's not awesome, right. at least in the things that we like to do. It is, it is an amazing bodyguard. It is very good at protecting its allies. The Order of the, of the Crown, its spell selection is, is actually really great for this kind of thing. It's got Compelled Duel, and one of its Channel Divinity abilities lets it basically lock down all enemies within 30 feet. It basically says, all of you attack me and you can't move away from me and don't attack my allies. It's actually really kind of amazing. It's one of the stickiest abilities in the entire game. Yeah. It's also the only class other than a cleric that can get the spell Warding Bond, which we talked about as being pretty amazing in our bodyguard build, I think way back in like episode six. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> So you can think of this as maybe an update to the bodyguard. Warding Bond is a spell that doesn't require concentration. It lasts for an hour and you cast it on another creature and you take half of any damage that they take and they have resistance to all damage. So you're basically splitting the damage between the two of you. Right. Now, since you're a paladin, you're likely going to have more hit points. And you've got some healing spells available to you. Exactly. So the build is Order of the Crown Paladin 11, Bladesinger 5. And pretty much whatever else you want for the rest of those levels. Yeah. Bladesinger 5 also gets you some great wizard spells. You get shield, misty step, lets you teleport around and get closer to your allies so that you can use your protection fighting style. And it also mitigates a lot of the problems that Paladin generally has, which is you can cast fly. So you can actually attack creatures that uh, are out of the range of your melee weapons. Mm -hmm. And you can also haste yourself so you can get an extra attack, which is really nice. Yeah, You're also a great secondary healer because you get Aura of Vitality, which lets you use a bonus action for a full minute to uh, heal someone for 2d6 hit points. It's really better out of combat when you can just heal 20d6 hit points. Yeah, and you've got a pretty potent lay on hands that you can heal a large chunk of yourself if you need to. Right. Uh, Particularly with that warding bond starts wearing you down. (laughs) Yeah, that was always the problem with Sword Mages in 4e, was you were really great at preventing damage to your allies, but... Man, yeah, <laughs> you really needed a lot of healing yourself. Exactly. <laughs> so it's nice to be able to do at least some of it yourself. Yeah, when you've got a warding bond and the whole group of enemies is beating on you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped into the scrum because I'm brave, but I'm not bright. I made a mistake. Wait, I am bright. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wise. Right. <laughs> Dump wisdom, totally. That totally works for this. It's all this book smart. Yeah. 
I will say here, uh, Warcaster is a trap option. You already get everything that you need from it from the Blade Song. And you obviously don't need to cast a spell on your opportunity attack because you have a good opportunity attack. Right. So, Ishan, tell me about your sword mage. I think he's a high elf. Well, he's got to be some type of elf. <laughs> he <laughs> oh, is a blade singer. Oh, we're sticking to that. Wah, wah. <laughs> a houseless high elf looking to reclaim the glory of his house, which either is disgraced or doesn't really exist anymore. So he's sort of the last one, uh, which is why he's a, a wanderer. But before the house fell, he was uh, raised to be a foot soldier and a retainer. So as a, a bodyguard who fought in the ranks. Oh, okay. Uh, right, protected uh, other nobles and then also fellow soldiers. And I think he is out in the world looking for a way to restore his house uh, to its former glory or to, you know, basically start a new house. Ah, okay. The best way to do that is lots of money. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Adventuring. Yeah. What about your sword mage? I think my sword mage is the last of his order. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe his community was the only sword mages in the world, uh, the only elves that still practice that tradition, or, and it was destroyed, or maybe it's a very secretive tradition, almost like a, a monk-like training regimen, uh, but he is the last remaining elf with knowledge of it. Kind of reminds me of the Nalsheen from Tanith in the Gaunt series of novels. It's this ancient fighting style that died with the planet, uh, and there is one member of the ghosts who wasn't a member, but was trained by them. So he kind of carries it on without actually being a sword mage. And puts his own spin on it. Right. By adding in some paladin. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of takes best available, if you will. (laughs) All right. So everyone who's been writing in saying, please use Order of the Crown, you're welcome. I don't think there has actually been anyone yet. but Our dozens of (laughs) listeners. All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to tell a friend. I don't care about five-star reviews on iTunes at the moment. I still want five-star reviews on iTunes. All right, fine. You can leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and if you do that, we will read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about running natural disasters. And in the Character Creation Forge? Well, we'll be building a war correspondent. Well, that's it for episode 48 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 